Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first ever episode of Drunk, uh, Annoying Question Boy. I am, of course, your host with the most, Annoying Question Boy, coming at you live, discussing some topics that I'm sure none of you uh, really want to hear me talk about. But I'm going to do it anyways. Um, Today we got quite a bit of uh, information to mull over, so I hope you are strapped in and ready for a uh, intriguing, information-filled episode uh, of Drunk Annoying Question Boy. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that sweet, juicy, voluptuous intro music. So, um, I post a lot of my podcasts and blogs and stuff in this page called Left Pod Posting. Uh, I've talked about it on, a, like, the last few episodes. Um, and a couple of the people uh, in that group, actually a majority of the people in that group, uh, do not live in the United States. Uh, I focus a lot of my podcasts on, you know, domestic United States news because... You know, that's where I live, and that's kind of the news and media that I consume, so that's what I reciprocate. That's what I talk about. But in talking with some of the people there, it's not simply their disdain for uh, American news. It's just simply that kind of consumes most of the leftist podcasting realm. So they, uh, you know, I've spoken to a couple people. I did an episode on Bolivia, um, and I've spoken to a, a couple other people since who say that they you know, enjoyed kind of getting some world news. So we're, we're going to go ahead and roll with that because I love pandering to people who might listen to my podcast. Uh, so let's go ahead and start with uh, some shit that went down in the Philippines. Uh, so the biggest news story that's kind of going on right now is uh, this morning, their president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, pardon an American soldier, Joseph Pemberton, of his murder in 2014-2015 of Jennifer Laud. Um, I couldn't seem to find a whole lot of, like, first... Per- or not first person, but, like, primary sources about the case. Most of which I found was, unfortunately, on Wikipedia. But I also uh, spent a lot of that time reading that article, uh, Googling some of the facts that were stated and things like that, and finding articles that way. So not all of... Most of this information actually doesn't come from Wikipedia, but I use a lot of, like, the fact-based, like who Pemberton was, the age of Jennifer, like, the dates and stuff like that. And some of the facts uh, throughout I do get from Wikipedia. So if you have a problem with that, I apologize. But so uh, back in, I believe it was 2014 when the actual murder was committed, um, Pemberton was stationed in the Philippines for uh, regular military training. Then a private, he was in the country training as many have since the signing of the U.S. Mutual Defense Treaty between the U.S. and the Philippines. While visiting the island nation, Pemberton made his way to a disco club called Ambiance Disco Bar and eventually met Jennifer Laud. After dancing for a while, they made their way together to a nearby motel. About 30 minutes after checking in, witnesses, uh, as well as uh, camera evidence, caught uh, Pemberton on camera leaving the building. He actually left the door to his room open, and eventually Jennifer's body was found by some of the workers. Uh, She was naked, with her head dunked into the toilet, and black and blue strangulation marks around her neck. The official ruling by medics on the scene was, of course, asphyxiation by drowning. Condoms were found in the room, three in total, and were tested by members of the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory. Eventually, they determined, according to sources, that one of the condoms did in fact have Pemberton's fingerprints on them. The other two were not discussed in the articles that I read. Preceding the death, Pemberton was arrested and detained. First, abroad, or first aboard the ship that he had docked on, 
later in the armed forces of the Philippines camp, Camp Aguinaldo. On December 15, 2014, he was officially charged with murder. According to the courts, he was cited as having demonstrated treachery, cruelty, and an abuse of superior strength. On February 23rd of 2015, he pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the murder, tri- the murder trial began in March of that year. Sorry, I'm going to take another sip. Um, because a, a there was a ban on any press uh, within the actual trial... Most of the information that media received was uh, from Laud's family or Pemberton's lawyers. So according to Laud's family, um, they had originally been offered 21 million Filipino pesos or about $468,000 in uh, U.S. currency in exchange for the lowering of the charges from murder to homicide. But, of course, Pemberton's lawyers deny the claim that they ever offered money. Also, amongst the odd happenings of this court decision, one of the Lodge family's lawyers, Harry Roke, was initially barred by prosecutor uh, Emil Fay de los Santos from the trial. An actual statement made by Pemberton was an admittance to fighting with Laud, but not killing her. He said he, quote-unquote, fought in self-defense after finding out, in fact, that Laud was transgender. The official findings seem even more obscured. Pemberton was officially convicted of homicide, with the court citing that there was no evidence available to convict Pemberton of murder. It again kind of confused me when I learned that the reason why Pemberton was convicted of homicide and not murder is because of, quote, mitigating circumstances that led to the reveal that Jennifer was transgender. Uh, Harry Roke, who we mentioned a few seconds earlier, uh, is the Laud family lawyer said, it is not right that these mitigating circumstances showed his bigotry toward his, speaking of Pemberton, uh, his bigotry toward a transgender woman, and the bigotry itself is why he killed her. Uh, Eventually, the trial came to a close and Pemberton was convicted of homicide. He was made to pay fines to the Laud family, altogether totaling about uh, 9,105,250 Philippine pesos, or about 187 million U.S. dollars. I actually believe that that... I don't know if that's accurate. I'm going to do the math on that again real quick, because that doesn't sound correct to me now. Uh, let me go on my calculator app. Um, so we got... Oh, wait, I'm stupid. I can just Google that. 9,105,250. Oh, wow. I don't know how to type, apparently. Okay. Yeah, no, it says it's 187 US dollars. Alright, so he paid... Or, 100... It might be 187,000 instead of 187 million. I don't know. Whatever. He paid some money uh, for the crime itself. Funeral expenses, burial expensive, quote-unquote moral damages, and quote-unquote exemplary damages. His original sentence of 12 years was reduced to 10, and he was held without bail. Uh, Five years passed, and on September 2nd, also known as this past Wednesday... Uh, his partial motion of reconsideration was passed, granting him freedom from prison. The Laud family obviously opposed the claims made by Pemberton and his camp, saying that he had served 10 years, 1 month, and 10 days of quote-unquote good time allowance. Laud's mother stated, Pemberton, who lives comfortably and only his liberty is restricted, cannot reasonably and justifiably claim good conduct. This isn't, however, the first criminal case brought against a U.S. soldier within the Philippines. 
In 2005, there was a case brought against four military members, and the case eventually took the name of the Subic Rape Case. Three of the four were immediately acquitted during the trial, while the fourth of them faced charges. But soon after, Nicole, the anonymous name by which the party the crime was committed against took, out of nowhere recanted her initial statement, saying now that the rape never happened, and immediately moved to the United States. Many other cases have been tried, but most are acquitted. Um, So to give kind of context about the U.S. and the Philippines, like, kind of like domestic relationship, uh, we won't go too far back. I mean, the Philippines was a U.S. territory until only fairly recently, when they were deemed uh, independent with still U.S. control, basically. But in 1951, the Mutual Defense Treaty was signed by both the Philippines and the U.S. and has since been amended and updated a few times. Uh, There has been steady opposition to the ties between the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, Many Filipino people find that this treaty disproportionately values U.S. interests in the Philippines, over the Filipino people themselves. It has also been opposed due to the many different military bases that allows the U.S. to build in the Philippines, which at many times have led to altercations and crimes committed against Filipino people by U.S. soldiers, most of which, again, are acquitted. In the 90s, a large chunk of the U.S. presence was removed from the country due to some not-so-friendly demonstrations by anti-U.S. Filipinos. But after 9-11, the U.S. doubled down, on, doubled down on its military presence across the world, placing in total 193 bases in many different countries around the planet, many of those being within the Philippines, where they reintroduced relations that allowed the U.S. to cycle out soldiers within the U.S. camps in the Philippines. Although the agreement does not allow permanent presence by the U.S. military, it might as well consider since the early 2000s there has been or sorry i i delivered that poorly it might all right so i'm going to start from the beginning <laughs> uh But after 9-11, the U.S. doubled down on its military presence across the world, placing in total 193 bases in many different countries around the planet, many of them being within the Philippines, where they reintroduced relations that allowed the U.S. to cycle out soldiers within the U.S. camps in the Philippines. Although this agreement does not allow permanent presence by the U.S. military, it might as well, considering since the early 2000s, there has been at least a few hundred U.S. soldiers stationed on the island country. When the U.S. became more present in the Philippines again, there were uh, they were there for their mission named Operation Enduring Freedom-Philippines, where they were stationed to advise and train Filipino forces in the U.S.'s war on terrorism. This, of course, reignited the anti-U.S. sentiment of many Filipino citizens. There was also a bit of a loophole done by the U.S. military by making agreements within the 2014 Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement that since they were not, the U.S., establishing new bases and simply living within the AFPs, the armed, uh, I believe, it's, it's the Filipino military's, Uh, stations, they were not quote-unquote permanently stationed because it's not recognized as a U.S. military base. But as of this morning, again, uh, President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, pardoned Pemberton on the merits of his peaceful interactions with all foreign lands. That's Duterte, not Pemberton. Earlier this year, it seemed that the Philippines planned to back out of the U.S. visitation agreement but later in June did a 180, recanting the idea and reaffirming relations with the U.S. This, of course, sparked massive debates and much anger by the Filipino people who felt they were finally to be rid of U.S. imperialistic intervention. I myself, speaking on nothing of tangible evidence, find it a bit fishy. 
considering back in the beginning of the year that the Philippines seemed to be beginning to align themselves more with China, and now since the outbreak of COVID and the U.S.'s constant battering of the Chinese people and their government, it seems one way or another this influenced the Filipino government to change their original decision to remove the U.S.'s visitation rights provided to them in the agreement and continue di uh, diplomatic relations with America. I find it to be a bit fishy, but again, I have no substantial or really any evidence at all to base that feeling on, but it does seem fishy. So, Pemberton kind of got off, there's no... I haven't looked at any articles since this morning, but um, I haven't seen anything on Twitter or on Facebook about this case, so I don't know if anything's changed, but as far as I know, Pemberton has been let off for quote-unquote good conduct. Um, but let's go ahead and, first of all, take another sip. Oh. Uh, so let's go ahead and skip across the country a bit over to this little-known place called Belarus. Um, so to give as much context as I can before we get into it, let me try to explain where Belarus is. Uh, so to my knowledge, Belarus is a country that is positioned with Russia to its east and the Ukraine to kind of like its southwest. Uh, this positions them between the fight of the U.S. and Russia. Belarus has eventually become a hotspot, like the Ukraine, for calls of democracy and new government systems. This has led Belarus's leader, Alexander Lukashenko, to crack down on many outbreaks and protests calling for the resignation of him, who is called by many Europe's last dictator. Excuse me. Having ruled since this, having ruled since soon after the 1991 collapse of the Soviet Union, Lukashenko has remained in power longer than any other serving European leader for almost 30 years now. He has said that he has tried to contain Soviet-like society, keeping manufacturing as well as the media under state control. He even still has a, a secret police force still operating under the name of KGB. Many citizens of Belarus say that there is no living wage being paid to employees, no political freedoms, and little to no freedom of information. Amongst all these things, however, Lukashenko has uh, been able to contain a pretty solid, formidable base, especially amongst his soldiers and police officers. Um, assuming the role of nationalistic defender against foreign interference, Lukashenko has been able to solidify some of his support in the anti-U.S., anti-Russian campaign of economic, political, and social freedom for Belarus. But this seems to only be true for those who follow suit. On August 9th of this year, Lukashenko released data stating that he had in fact won yet another election, his sixth now, of which only the first was deemed fair and free by outside voting organizations. This, of course, caused widespread anger, considering that no individual or outside person was able to observe the vote counting. And following the election, which took place in August, for several days there was an internet blackout. Lukashenko soon after announced his victory, espousing an 80% totaling of votes in his favor. Even though his opposition, 37-year-old English teacher Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, Tikhanovskaya, we're going to just call her Svetlana, uh, who took the mantle of running against Lukashenko after her husband, Sergei, was arrested, insisted that where voting counts had been done correctly, she herself had actually amassed 60 to 70% of the overall vote. This led to a verification of Belarus's worst fears. Yet again, the election was obviously tampered with, and they began to take to the streets. Oh, scrolls a little too far down. 
The day of the election, Svetlana pleaded with the election authorities, citing the obvious falsifications of the counts, and was subsequently detained for several hours, eventually leading to her exile to Lithuania, where she had already sent her children for safety. The night after the election, over 30,000, or sorry, I misread that, over 3,000 protesters were beaten, tased, maced, tear gassed, shot with rubber bullets, and stunned with new stun stun grenades that had to this point never been used on citizens in this country. On August 17th from Lithuania, uh, Svetlana sent a video claiming that she was ready to assume control of Belarus and asked for diplomatic, peaceful transfer of power, to which Lukashenko responded with blatant aggression. He immediately sent after members of the council and detained them as well. In the following nights, more protests occurred, with many citing immense police brutality and outright violence against anyone present within the demonstrations. Many protesters have been detained by police, thrown into overcrowded jails and prisons amidst a global pandemic, I might add. Many were tortured and beaten, more once they arrived as well. Uh, the BBC uh, correspondents did an interview with a man who only goes by the name of Sergei for obvious reasons. Um, he stated that he was, so he was arrested at one of the protests alongside with his brother, but he ended up in kind of like his own cell and place, it seems. Uh, so he was, he was basically tortured. Well, not basically. He was tortured by Belarus's police and military. He stated that he was electrocuted ten times in total, in the arms, heart, and side, by police who were berating him with questions about who was in charge of organizing the protests. After officially being released, both him and his brother presented a doctor's note to the BBC correspondents who interviewed him detailing and proving the claims that he had, in fact, been tortured by the police while in custody. This video might as well, uh, or sorry, I read that wrong again. This video, as well as many others, posts on social media of the injuries that they had received during protests led to an explosion of support, not only by other citizens of Belarus, of which over 100,000 gathered in the city of Minsk to protest and demand the removal of Lukashenko, but also surrounding countries. Many are fearful for what is to come, but uh, more hope for a better and democratic tomorrow. Saying now that the media and international eyes are on Belarus, there might be a chance for a better day to come. But still with no change happening yet, we're still to see anything become better for the people of Belarus. Uh, so let's again skip to another country, and let's go to the Middle East in Iran. Um, so I'm not sure if I, like, wasn't doing good enough research or what, but I'm not, like, seeming to find any article that, like, kind of has a timeline explaining the basis of the original U.S. sanctions and UN sanctions on Iran founded in the uh, JCPOA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is also known as the Iranian Nuclear Deal or the Iran Deal, which was founded in 2015 by a combination of support by the P5 plus one, also known as the UK, US, Russia, China, and France plus Germany, and Iran. Uh, However, in 2018, the U.S. removed itself from the pact. Um, So to kind of go over just real quick, let me me hit that fat Google search. Um, So Wikipedia defines the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action as 
um, an agreement on the Iranian nuclear program reached in Vienna on July 14th, 2015. So it essentially, to kind of boil it down to its absolute bare minimum, the JCPOA, also known as the Iran deal, was a plan that was kind of formed by, but it's not really clear who wrote the the deal, but it, I mean, it would make sense that it was the U.S. Essentially saying that they would slowly but surely, like, ease sanctions um, on the uh, Iran- Iranian people as long as they kind of halted their uranium uh, refining. Uh... But again, like I said, in 2018, the U.S. actually removed itself from that pact. Uh, Many criticize this move, and many others speculate what it is that influenced Trump and his administration to do so. But some have come to the conclusion that it has to do with the U.S.'s allegiance to Israel. About a week after Israel's leader, Netanyahu, gave a presentation entitled, Iran Lied... Donald Trump and the U.S. decided to pull out of the joint 2015 deal. France's president, uh, Macron, I believe it's pronounced, advised against this idea, uh, uh, telling a German magazine in an interview called Der Spiegel that it would, quote, open the Pandora's box, there could be a war. But to all of us who have been paying attention, this seems like useless conversation, Because it's become quite impossible to deny the idea that that is exactly what the U.S., Trump, and his administration are searching for. Considering the absolute collapse of our economy, the 32.7% drop in GDP, combined, wow, holy shit, I gotta take another sip for that. Combined with already existing debt, a new jobless rate that is higher than it has been in years, a raging political and economic sense to begin to start a war kind of makes sense. Um, also the pandemic, so yeah. With Saudi Arabia, Israel, and many others that are aligned with the U.S., it seems to be that they are gearing up for something similar as well based on their interactions with surrounding countries, trade embargoes, etc. But I can't cast dispersions just yet. It just seems to make sense in my head. But I could be wrong. Uh, The removal of the U.S. from the JCPOA, uh, also known, of course, as the Iran Iran deal, after Trump said in a press conference that it is, quote, the worst deal ever, and could lead to a, quote, nuclear holocaust, he began to create, or it began to create ruptures um, within Iranian society. Considering that this agreement between countries was a joint deal, there is no truth to the claim that the U.S. removing itself makes any of the agreement null and void. The agreement itself with Iran to decrease its nuclear capabilities in exchange for reasonably loosened sanctions is, in fact, still in effect. But because of the U.S.'s retreat from the agreement, there has been intrinsic consequences on Iran's economy and their working class. So, essentially because of the income that was supposed to be provided due to the lessened sanctions on Iran... There was supposed to be a new boom in their economy. But this, combined with COVID and Trump's removal from the JCPOA, and his idea that Iran has now since began overproducing uranium, as well as the assertion that Iran is attempting to destabilize the regions of Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories, he has insisted on, quote, snapping back sanctions on Iran. Which, because of the statutes provided in the JCPOA, the U.S. actually has no grounds to do anything of that matter. At a U.N. meeting recently, 
13 of the 15 members sent letters, quote, underscoring or condemning the actions the U.S. intends to take against Iran and the ones it already has. Many claiming that this is simply the U.S. and its, uh, I think he's the Attorney General, Pompeo, being overwhelmingly aggressive and, quote, unpleasant, which is such a strong word. I'm really glad that some diplomat decided to voice their opinion. How encouraging. But again, because of these sanctions, many working class individuals, as well as the Iranian economy as a whole, is beginning to face many problems, of which there will be no solution without the removal of sanctions by the U.S. Amidst, again, a global pandemic, the assertion of new sanctions is criminal and should not be allowed. But of course, the UN and the rest of the world doesn't seem to give enough of a shit to do anything other than file some letters of discontent. The U.S. used its removal of itself from the JCPOA as an excuse for why it is legal for them to reinsert sanctions on the Iranian government. Considering the agreement was nothing more than simply a political arrangement and therefore holds no legal precedent, this is all within the means and rights of the U.S. to do some. But amongst many other problems facing the Iranian people, a massive wave of sanctions is surely not what they need. Uh, More than 16 different Iranian industrial centers have started to protest for the payment of wages owed, better working conditions, a removal of anti-union legislature, and a new wave of economic assistance that is being demanded by these protesters. This is the largest cooperative strike held within the region in 40 years since the Iranian Revolution. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry about that, just gotta scroll a little. Um... The protest began in... So it's spelled K-H-U-Z-E-S-T-N. I'm going to go for it. Kazakhstan. Uh, that's where the protest began, uh, where the, more, the most important oil fields within the region are located. They slowly but surely made their way to other refineries, the strikes that is, located all throughout central Iran. The most notable since has been the movement on August 4th, where 10,000-plus workers began to strike in Isfahan. Uh, these strikes seem to be well-placed, considering the oil is the main export of the country due to its moderately non-diverse economy. The worker strikes also include electricians, builders, welders, and many others who are forced to work 20-day cycles where they are staying at work and working for 20 days straight and then receive 10 days off. Many are calling for an end to this work schedule. We do know, however, that the Iranian government does not respond well to protests. Last November, many protests also erupted within Iran, leading to the arrest of many of its activists. Among those who were arrested, many admit to the awful violations of human rights laws, and some even recounted sexual abuse that was committed against them while in custody. These November protests commenced after the Iranian government increased the price of petrol by 50% amidst an already crumbling economy. Uh, The leader of the Iranian government denounced the protesters as evildoers and sent swarms of military officials to lethally end the demonstrations. 304 men, women, and children were reported dead within the first five days of military involvement within the protests. Iran's internal, or, sorry, interior minister claims it was less than 225, but considering that most of them were inflicted with gunshot wounds, I doubt that he plans to openly admit what happened. Amongst the 304 dead, another 7,000 people were arrested of which many report being tortured by the police or military in search for confessions of compliance with human rights organizations, outside media, 
foreign governments and with those who began or organized the protests. This, of course, led to nothing, considering it was in fact a working-class movement started due to both an already existing economy that is riddled with problems due to the involvement of the U.S. and its sanctions, as well as a government who has yet to begin to diversify its economy and give a good life to its workers. Since then, November of last year, COVID has impacted their ability to protest. But still, to this day, in Iran and many other places across the world, there is in fact calling for change. In many different ways, but still nonetheless, a demand for better government seems to be a key characteristic in each and every protest happening across the world in this time. But in more domestic news, um, so I'm having a hard time kind of deciding where to start because they all kind of coincide with one another in their foundation. So I'm just going to go ahead and start with the lightest of the few topics I have left to cover. Um, so yeah, so schools have uh, started to open back up. What a shocker, right? And in other surprising news, many of those schools are already having to shut back down due to coronavirus outbreaks and flare-ups. Again, what a shocker. But I think that there seems to be some kind of disconnect between people and their understanding of really what's happening with all of this. So I real quick before this googled colleges closing COVID. And found a plethora of articles such as one in the New York Times titled, quote, Schools Briefing, University Outbreaks and Parental Angst. This was written by Amelia Nuremberg and Adam Pasek. The subheading of this article is telling of what's to come, stating, quote, Coronavirus clusters have been linked to fraternities, sororities, and off-campus parties. Um, so this kind of seems to be the sentiment of those I've spoken to. Uh, it's kind of like an utter ridiculous thing to have happen. You know, why can't students just block themselves off in their 4 by 4 dorm rooms and stay away from each other? Why can't they take some kind of social responsibility and realize that they're ruining things for the rest of the school's students? Um, but I counter this assertion and raise another. Why didn't our government take some social responsibility and actually implement policies and practices to mitigate and stop the spread of the virus way back in January when we first found out about it? How about in February and March, where we began to see cases spiking in the U.S. for the first time? Why didn't our government take some responsibility then, huh? I agree, obviously, that college kids are stupid and should be staying away from one another. But I also live in the real world where I recognize that colleges, essentially, at least in the States, because that's all I can speak for, a place for 20-year-old kids to go to do drugs, have sex, drink a lot, party, and go to class sometimes. And this isn't new. I mean, this is celebrated in pop popular culture in, like, movies, TV shows, etc. So it's not like this is news to anyone. It's honestly kind of a pretty common understanding of what happens at colleges. So, like, why the fuck did we open them back up? I mean, essentially, half of the country's adult population seems incapable of wearing a mask properly. So how did we expect horny, socially deprived 20-year-olds to carry the torch? I have really nothing else to say on the matter other than the fact that, like, right now, I'm calling it. Schools will start to close down. They'll continue to blame students for having broken the rules. They'll take all their students' money and call it a day. Considering they're not getting any federal grants, this is the one way that colleges can ensure that they're going to make money. Of course, no repercussions will come to the government for opening schools back up so insistently, and neither to the schools for their role in all of this. Um, in other news, it seems that 
Trump has found a new piece of media that he's obsessed with more than Twitter, but he in fact hates it rather than obsesses over it. The piece of media I'm referring to, of course, is the 1619 Project. To those who don't know, this project was created by the New York Times earlier this year and is an ongoing project that aims to bring the consequences of years of slavery, which led to disproportionate treatment of certain groups of people, discrimination, and many other systematic problems to the forefront of the nation's narrative. Trump, in some kind of press conference, he always seems to be speaking to someone, uh, recently presented the idea that if any school is found to be teaching the 1619 Project in their curriculum, they can in fact kiss their their school's funding goodbye. Um, now, I don't know if you folks are like really aware of this, but there's currently a bit of a global healthcare crisis that's kind of ravaging our country especially. This has led to, of course, as we already discussed, a massive drop in GDP and a huge financial problem across the country. Considering that Trump and his ghoulish Secretary of Education, Betsy Davos, demanded that schools begin to open with the help of many others in Washington and elsewhere. With no funds available for state and local government aid, many schools are operating with a tight budget. Considering that of the funds available to schools from the federal government, most of them were tied to contracts to remain open, combined with this new unofficial stipulation with the teaching of the 1619 Project, many schools are being forced to operate at the high ends and within the confines of the U.S. government, or rather, Davos, Trump, and their team's ideals as well as those of our esteemed president. So yeah, when your president is directly threatening to cut off funding for a necessary and foundational institution such as public education, simply because he doesn't feel their curriculum fits his narrative, that's a bit fascist to me, if you ask me. Which none of you are, I'm just telling you. So there, now you know. So speaking of fascism, um, earlier this week, or rather, should I say last week, um, sorry, depression seems to have, like, removed my ability to tell which day it is. That or our never-ending society of doom and gloom that has led to me being in a place where each day seems to fade into another and nothing changes, and so I can't keep track of the days. Or, you know, like, something like that. But, uh, yeah, so last week or something, I don't know, I did a bonus episode, uh, which you should totally listen to, um, where I went on Trump's official website and read off some of his, uh, second-term agenda bullet points. One of them had to do with education, of course. And under that subheading, education, there was only two bullets of change that the Trump campaign deemed fit to discuss. The first being, of course, what everyone is asking for and pleading for. Health care. Oh, wait, no, sorry. I read that wrong. Um, in fact, it was, quote, free choice for each student, a.k.a. essentially the availability and freedom to go to school in person if you want to, basically. And the second bullet point, which we'll spend a little bit of time here on, uh, said, and I'm quoting, teach American exceptionalism. And if you don't know what that means, or you do and don't believe me, go ahead and check it out yourself. But for the sake of saving time for you, because I'm such a kind and amazing person like that, Let me go ahead and read to you the dictionary definition of American exceptionalism. And I'm quoting here. American exceptionalism is the theory that the history of the United States is inherently different from that of other nations. Stemming from its emergence from the American Revolution, becoming what the political scientist Seymour Martin Lipset called, quote, the first new nation, 
in developing a uniquely American ideology, Americanism, based on liberty, equality before the law, individual responsibility, republicanism, representative democracy, and laissez-faire economics. This ideology itself is often referred to as American exceptionalism. Second is the idea that America has a unique mission to transform the world. As President Abraham Lincoln stated in the Gettysburg Address, Americans have a duty to ensure, quote, government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Third is the sense that America's history and its mission give it a superiority over other nations. Uh, so that's one definition. I'm going to go ahead and read this other definition from American-Exceptionalism.org. American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States of America is unique among the nations of the world in that it was founded on principles of individual liberty, private property rights, and equal justice for all. Because it is unique, the United States has a special role in the world and in human history. So, where to start with that? So, sorry. To those of you who don't get it, um, this is nationalism. But it's nationalism in the way that was defined to me in my World War II class as what led to Germany starting World War II. So this last part here where it says third is the sense that America's history and its mission give it a superiority over other nations. So that's the part I would like to focus on. We'll, we'll real quick kind of talk about that in the other parts, but I would like to focus on the, this the most. So let's go ahead and cover the other things. So it says that American exceptionalism is the theory that the, the history of the United States is inherently different from that of other nations, stemming from its, its emergence from the American Revolution. What this definition of American exceptionalism doesn't seem to really factor in is the fact that America was founded on an already existing nation's land. To those of you who didn't pay attention in American history class, we as Americans kind of left Britain, or should I say Britain created colonies within America, and then slowly but surely, American people who were sick of the way things were in Britain decided to move to America and begin to create their own country. What those who wrote this definition might not have known is that there were already people living here. So this idea that America was founded on qualities such as liberty, equality before the law, individual responsibility, republicanism, representative democracy, and laissez-faire economics is quite lacking in its base, considering the first point, liberty, which I will go ahead and, you know, I, I don't want to cast any dispersions. I, I, I don't want to lead you guys down the wrong path. So I, I, I'm going to go ahead and define liberty based on Dictionary.com's definition. Liberty is a noun. It is the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. So I'd like to take a step back and let's go ahead and talk about the fact that America was founded within a country that already had people living here. So this idea that America was founded on the basis of liberty kind of is antithetical to its own claim because 
freedom to live individually was directly and consistently denied for Native Americans. The second point, equality before the law, is also consistently and inherently the bi- or denied in that it is the basis of America's foundation. We signed treaties with Native Americans to give them land and then consistently and constantly took that land back from them, telling them that they could no longer live there, even though this was their ancestral land. The next point that says, um, sorry, Uh, As President Abraham Lincoln stated in the Gettysburg Address, Americans have a duty to ensure government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from this earth. So let's go ahead and dive into that real quick. So, government of the people. Maybe in the founding days did we have that? But I mean, even then, people like Washington, Thomas Jefferson... All of those who were present in the writing of the Constitution of the United States, as I've discussed on previous blogs and podcasts, were members of an elitist class. And therefore, this was not a government of the people by the people for the people, but it was in fact a government of the rich people by the rich people for the rich people. So this assertion that America is kind of dependent on its mission to continue that throughout the world is ridiculous because we couldn't even do that here. And of course, finally, the real fascist point. Third is the sense that America's history and its mission give it a superiority other over other nations. So, I mean, I'm not one to kind of past conspiracies or anything like that. But, I mean, really, you can kind of look at America's nationalistic history and see where that nationalism, that superiority, can lead to some complications. So the fact that our probably next president, Trump, posted on his official website under his website's official second-term agenda, that they would teach American exceptionalism is open admittance that a fascist government such as America's government will continue, if not reaffirm, its teaching that America, the country of which this education will be taught in, is superior to other nations. Because this totally won't lead to any problems whatsoever, right? It definitely hasn't to this point. So I'm glad that we can, you know, rest assured, be uh, affirmed this idea that nothing will come because of this teaching. No problems will uh, amass themselves because of this nationalistic and supremacist ideology that we teach our children. That's not a problem whatsoever, right? Um, so yeah, that's like, it's kind of it for me. Um, I, I don't really know uh, how to end this because that was kind of a hard-hitting pod. Um, I'm sorry to like I feel bad because like kind of every podcast that I do, I kind of just kind kind of just pound you guys with this this negativity, like all this shit that's going wrong in the world and in this country and how like we have this impending doom that's coming and how like you know, we're all just fucked. And I feel bad for always presenting this as kind of the truth. Um Because I I am one who has hope. I have hope for change. I have hope for a new America. I have hope for, um, you know, the ability for things to get better. But at the same time, as a, a, a podcaster and as one who is 
um, directly in opposition to America's constant narrative that it does nothing wrong, I kind of have to present you guys with this information. Because otherwise, I mean, realistically, the only reason I found this was because of Left Voice, which is a a newsletter organization that you guys should look into. Also, Liberation News. Go ahead and sponsor me, guys. I love you. I read you every morning. Um, But yeah, so I'm sorry that I consistently give you guys negativity. So let me go ahead and give you some positivity. So... Um, the guy who killed Breonna Taylor, he got fired. Did he get convicted for murder? No. Is he facing any fines? No. Did he get paid all the way up to now? Yes. Probably is there going to be any stopping him from joining the police force one town over? No. But he did get fired, so I mean, like, that's good, right? Um, I would like to finish this podcast with a little, um, little message that I kind of gave to my grandma on the phone earlier. Shout out, grandma. Sorry for yelling at you earlier. I was a bit mad. Um, so now I am not, of course, um, advising anyone to cause any property or physical damage to anyone. But I will say that after almost a hundred days of peaceful protesting, the only thing we have been able to accomplish is the firing of one person that was involved in the death of Breonna Taylor. Um, Now, I'm not saying that peaceful protests do nothing. Um, They do, but that's not what I'm saying. But we should stop using peaceful protests as the rule. And start using them as the exception. According to most that I've read, peaceful protesting should essentially be used as the official first call to the powers that be that if change doesn't happen, shit's going to get fucked up. But after at least 50 days of, according to a study that came out, 93% peaceful protests, almost absolutely nothing has changed. With an election coming up in November, and us probably either getting a Biden or Trump presidency, the time for peaceful protests probably came about the same time that the first black person was brought to America as a slave. That's 1619 to those of you who don't know that. We are done asking, or I should say, we should be done asking. Peaceful protests are meant to be an appeasement of power and an asking for change. In a country that has found its foundation on racist sentiments, I do not quite understand why any person nor organization would find it plausible that a peaceful protest would cause any systematic change, let alone any change at all. So I implore you to stop perpetuating this narrative that we must remain peaceful. Peace is only allotted when justice is served. And considering that only one person to this point has been even fired for murdering a person because of their badge that they wear on their chest, I would say that change hasn't happened. So, satirically speaking, of course, and only as a parody, I say this to you, stop fucking being peaceful. Now, of course, I, as a white American, can say that with absolutely no repercussions. I have only been to a few protests, about 10 in total, of which all have been peaceful. I did not cause any violence, and therefore I cannot lead you to a point where I can say commit violence because I myself have also committed violence. 
But I can say, as someone who studies history and studies politics, that no change has come simply because of peaceful protesting. And I will leave you with that bit of information. Thank you to all of those who have made it this far. I appreciate you very much. This, of course, has been your boy, Annoying Question Boy. If you didn't like what you heard, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I'm drunk. I'll blame that. So if you don't like what you liked, or if you did, go ahead and listen to some of my other stuff. You might like that, too. If you would like this in written form, you can find my blog at annoyingquestionboy.blogspot.com. You can also find me on YouTube at Annoying Question Boy. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can find me at Annoying Question Boy on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. Also on those social media platforms, if you have any advice, any questions, any comments, or any topics you'd like me to discuss, go ahead and DM me. Um, As always, like I said, it has been your boy. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and fuck white America. Adios.